This episode is brought to you by First Response, a trusted leader in pregnancy for every step in the journey from conception planning to postnatal nutrition. First Response prenatal gummy vitamin supplements offer essential nutrients throughout every step of your pregnancy journey without having to swallow a big pill. These soft, delicious gummy vitamins are available without a prescription at major pharmacies across Canada. Visit www.firstresponse.com for more information about First Response prenatal vitamins and other products to support your patients on their conception journey. This episode is also brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill is an easy-to-use mobile and web solution that truly simplifies the way you do medical billing. Join over 1,500 physicians already using our billing software to save time, boost productivity, and earn more. Visit drbill.ca. That's dr-bill ca for more information. I'm Andreas Lapakis, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm speaking with Claire Asima and Noah Ivers, who are here to tell uh, listeners about the research that they did on prescribing of oral anticoagulants in the emergency department and subsequent long-term use by older adults with atrial fib. To me, this study raised all sorts of interesting questions about communication and interaction between emergency physicians and primary care physicians, which I'm keen to discuss. Claire and Noah are both in their uh, different offices in Toronto, and uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Claire, can we maybe start by uh, maybe just tell listeners uh, what you do, and how did you and Noah end up working on this project together? Sure. I'm an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Hospital. Uh, I work about half a line. And this sort of issue comes up for me all the time when I want to send a patient home. Should I initiate a new medication like oral anticoagulation for stroke prevention in a patient with atrial fibrillation? And so I'm also a scientist and anything clinical comes up in my research world, I want to study it. And I knew Noah was a family physician, also a scientist. And so we got together to look at this. Noah, your interest in this? So I think, first of all, life's too short to work with people that uh, aren't fun and lovely to work with. And Claire meets those criteria. And indeed, I am a part-time family physician and um, I guess a full-time scientist interested in how we go about trying to improve quality of care and patient outcomes. Claire and I had the opportunity to be on the, the guideline committee for atrial fibrillation some time ago. And so we've done a few projects about atrial fibrillation, quality of care, and how we might go about improving it together. Claire, you're the lead author on the paper. Can you just briefly describe uh, what you did and what your findings were? Sure. So we looked at 15 hospitals in Ontario, and we just looked at patients age 65 and older. These are patients who should be, according to the CCS guidelines, which Noah pointed out we are both on, should be on oral anticoagulation unless there's some major reason why not. And we looked at patients who were given a first diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. So if I'm the eMERGE doc, I'm writing atrial fibrillation at the bottom of my chart. So for those patients, only those over 65 and only those who were sent home, we wanted to look at whether or not if I give a prescription for oral anticoagulation in the emergency department, how does that pan out over time? Is that better if I give it and initiate it in the emergency department on a patient who I don't know very well and who I'm not ever going to see again to make sure the dosage is correct, there's no side effects, et cetera? Is that better than simply sending the patient back to their family physician, like Noah, telling them to go and see them in order for them to initiate the oral anticoagulation? And that was the question we asked. 
We had 2,132 patients, and we found that 19% were given a prescription in the emergency department. And we did some fancy statistics and basically found that 68% of those patients filled a prescription at six months if we gave them a prescription in the ED. Now, patients who we didn't give a prescription in the ED, only 37% of those patients filled a prescription six months later. So that's a pretty big increase, about 30% effect of us. Well, we don't know for sure that it's an effect, but an association uh, with us in the ED initiating oral anticoagulation. So, Noah, how do you as a family physician feel about, you know, as, as Claire mentioned, I think this isn't starting someone on seven days of antibiotics. This is starting someone on a oral anticoagulant medication that's extremely effective in decreasing stroke in people with atrial fib, but also comes with some risk. How do you feel when uh, an eMERGE physician has started that medication without calling you, presumably? That's a really, really great question. Uh, and I, I think my feeling depends on whether I agree with it or not. <laughs> um, and I think it's worth it's worth emphasizing that indeed this is not a short term prescription. The idea here is that if you if you have atrial fibrillation, you have risk factors, including older age, that place you at elevated risk of stroke, you ought to be on stroke prevention therapy like anticoagulation pretty much indefinitely going forward unless new risk factors regarding bleeding come up. I think on the one hand, one of the things that can happen as a family physician is you might see that the emergency physician and maybe even a cardiologist saw the, the patient and, uh, geez, they didn't start the anticoagulant. Maybe it's not appropriate in this patient. On the other hand, you know, you might think to yourself, geez, it really is appropriate. Why didn't they start it? And maybe I'm going to make a referral to sort that out. Or you might be kind of annoyed that they didn't start it. This was a patient they saw. So it can run the gamut, I think. But in general, if I feel like it was an appropriate decision, I'm grateful because I think it helps communicate to me and to the patient that this is an important step. One of the things that then falls down sometimes, though, is something is started in hospital and the communication is not necessarily clear that I'm to continue it or that uh, the patient is meant to take it indefinitely, and then, you know, confusion reigns. One of the things that did strike me was that, you know, only 40% of patients who didn't have an oral anticoagulant started in the emergency department were actually on what I think would be a pretty standard treatment at six months. So why was that so low, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. There's been a bunch of studies into, you know, barriers that arise as it relates to prescribing of anticoagulants as stroke prevention therapy in atrial fibrillation. I think that frequently what can happen is that physicians and patients, but especially physicians in this case, might overestimate the implications of risks of bleeding and underestimate the implications in terms of risk of stroke. Atrial fibrillation strokes are, you know, typically quite terrible. Anticoagulation-related bleeds don't tend to lead to, you know, permanent disability uh, in contrast. And I think that sort of, on the other hand, bleeds are common. And it's, you know, quite common for a family doc to have seen a patient on anticoagulation having trouble with bleeding or bruising or other side effects and wanting to avoid that. And so there's a, I think there's a common issue related to how we weigh common, not terrible risks with 
slightly less common but horrible risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a that's a real challenge, I think, in clinical care. There are risk calculators that ought to help with that, but helping people to reliably use such things sometimes proves difficult as well. Um, I think there are also other factors. You know, I think there are some patients for whom it is inappropriate. And so even patients who were started, not all of them continued. And that might be because they were inappropriate due to bleeding risk or other risks, or maybe due to patient preference. Maybe they don't you know, like the idea of taking medication, whatever the risk, and so on. There are various factors that come into play, but I think a big one is how we weigh uh, benefits and harms. I mean, one of the things, as I said before, that really fascinated me about this study was, you know, what it said about the way we communicate among ourselves as health professionals and with patients in our healthcare system in Ontario. And, you know, I guess the obvious question is how we could do it better. So, Claire, when you're seeing someone in the emergency department, I think you said it was first diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. I don't think you meant necessarily that it was the first time they ever had atrial fibrillation diagnosed, but it was your most important diagnosis in the emergency department, I think. Exactly. How do you communicate back with the um, primary care physician, either while the patient is in your ED and then particularly when they go home? How confident are you? that the fact that the patient was in the ED and that you'd thoughtfully started the anticoagulation is going to get back to the family doctor? So that's a fantastic question. And uh, I'm not, quite frankly. The Currently, in the current system, the patient is themselves the conduit the of care. The system really is just the patient. We tell the patient to follow up within X number of days. We know from other work that that's usually within seven days is when we want them to be seen by their family physician. Um, Whether or not that actually happens, we have no idea. And the reality is, you know, I have tried calling family doctor's offices. First of all, the majority of our patients are seen after hours. Uh, So when I call, I typically get uh, an answering machine that says they don't take messages. And if this is an emergency, please call the ER or go to your nearest ER. And of course, I am the ER. Uh, So that's very frustrating. And there's just time uh, restrictions. So I don't have time when I'm trying to resuscitate patients uh, to be making phone calls and waiting on the line through the admin to get to the family physician. Personally, I send little letters that we have on our uh, EMR that I can print out and hand to the patient. But does everyone do that? No. And I I don't think it's realistic to think that we are all going to do that. I think what we need is some overarching system, which is other work that Noah and I are working on, that creates a real system of care between emergency departments and uh, family practitioners. So in a system that will actually allow us to get an appointment time before the patient leaves the ER so that I know that this patient is going to be seen on such and such a day. And if they can't be seen within, say, seven days, then I can... um, you know, make a backup plan, such as a referral to a neural anticoagulation uh, clinic. And many people say, well, why don't we do that everywhere? Well, that's a big problem too, because that encourages disparity in access to care, because some hospitals can do that. They have the money for to fund that sort of clinic, and some hospitals don't. Not to mention, it doesn't encourage continuity of care. I've had family physicians say to me, why did you send me to send my patient to that other clinic? I was perfectly willing to see them. I could have seen them. They did something else that I wouldn't have done or, or changed the plan. Send them back to me. So we just need a better connectivity between the two, but it has to be something that is going to work with workflows, with the family doctor's workflow, with the emergency workflows. And making phone calls is not the solution. 
And so um, just to make sure when you're talking about connectivity, you're, are you largely talking about when you're saying you'd like to get onto the computer and make an appointment in seven days, that would ideally be with the family physician, but that family physician, if you're in an emergency department in Sunnybrook, Toronto, the patient might actually live in Richmond Hill or something rather. So we're a long ways away from being able to do that in Ontario with our current EMR, are we not? We are. Well, the problem is EMRs. There's more than there's, uh, I believe, 11 currently in Ontario, uh, and we need connectivity with those EMRs. We need the EDs to have a direct line into those EMRs, and that's a huge problem, and it's something that uh, Noah and I are working on with the ministry. But you're right, it needs to be across the whole province. We aren't restricted the ED that patients come to. I need to be able to talk to family doctors or get an appointment, rather, at family doctors who are far beyond my subregion, for example. So it needs to be something that's cohesive for the whole province and, you know, potentially for the whole country. No, any comments on this? Well, I, I want to reiterate that, you know, right now there is no system and we're totally reliant on the patient. And so it creates all sorts of challenges for, I think, my emergency colleagues. You know, they're not sure that I'm going to be able to pick up the patient in a timely way for routine primary care, which I would consider stroke prevention therapy to be routine primary care. Um, and so, they feel maybe they should start it, but then they don't want to step on our toes. They get put in this uncomfortable situation because we don't have the system in place. There are other industries that have solved this. This is a solvable problem, but it, it will require some political will. And until then, I think it puts patients and physicians in some challenging situations where they have to decide, you know, emergency physicians have to decide whether to step into the realm of chronic disease management Patients have to be the go-between, and family physicians kind of feel in the dark and hope to be able to fill, uh, pick up the pieces. And that's, you know, that's a core challenge, I think, for our health system right now. Is there any province in, in Canada that either of you are aware of that has got this kind of communication thing better figured out than we do, or even in other countries? No. Simple answer is no. I don't know about other countries, but certainly not in Canada. Yeah. My okay. sense is that integrated systems like Kaiser with a single shared electronic health record might uh, have an yes. easier time with this, but I don't really know. So it'd be great to learn from them. But but unfortunately, you know, we're not going to have a single electronic health record in all sectors, I would imagine, in my lifetime. So uh, we can't learn directly from them. That's a nice segue to my next question. You're a young guy, Noah, so um, <laughs> it's going to be a long time until you think we're going to have uh, the system we'd like. So given that we're certainly not going to get it in the next few years, and given the results of the study that you've both done, should it now be routine that emergency physicians do prescribe oral anticoagulants to patients that would have been eligible for this study, uh, namely people over 65 with atrial fibrillation and no obvious contraindications to anticoagulation. Noah? So without wanting to burden my emergency colleagues, I, I want to say yes. I want to say that because I think they work so hard on the resuscitation aspect and I know that they wouldn't want to see the patient bounce back with stroke because, you know, I didn't know that they had this issue and so we didn't get them in or whatnot. And I say that, again, sort of cognizant that I, I know they don't want it to be part of their role to do chronic disease management. But given the evidence we have here, I think there's a real strong case to be made for some reasonable length of prescription to be given with very clear instructions about 
repeat prescriptions to be given by the family physician or nurse practitioner. And before I go to Claire, the, the reasonable length of prescription might be, what, 30 days or something? No? I vote yes. You know, I feel like two weeks might also be reasonable, but, you know, if that two weeks is over the uh, December holidays, maybe less so. And Claire, what, what's your answer to that? Should you and your colleagues, you know, be doing this more, I guess, routinely? Well, now that we actually have evidence uh, that it seems to be associated with uh, better long-term impact than if we just refer to uh, the family physician or to a cardiologist, because we have that evidence, uh, which isn't perfect, but it certainly is a pretty strong association, I think, yes, definitely. And all eMERGE docs really just want to have long-term impact. Like we really envy people, uh, in some ways, physicians who have that long-term impact and they see it with their patients. And we see patients once and we we would like to know that we're we're making a difference long term in their lives. So I think uh, with this uh, evidence, I think emergency physicians will be uh, somewhat open to doing this. Also because of the DOACs are much easier to prescribe and Just not having remind to remind us about, what DOAC is. Uh, sorry, direct oral anticoagulants. So uh, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and such. Uh, you don't have to send the patient for INR testing. Worry about if they're going to eat too much grapefruit or whatever other medication they're on. There are still are some issues, but much less. Uh, so I think they're going to be open to this, but I want to just clarify that if you look at the Canadian or the American emergency medicine bodies, how they define emergency care uh, is care that's provided in response to urgent or unforeseen illness, and it's defined by its time-sensitive nature. So preventative care, if you look at the system as a whole, is not really, it, it's not the most efficient place to provide it, um, in part because you know, if we're, the more time we spend on preventative care, like giving oral anticoagulants, uh, HIV testing, cholesterol, uh, counseling, smoking cessation, there's so many things we could do in emergency. And sometimes we have to because the patient has no access to primary care. But the more time we spend on that, you know, the 40 or so patients who are waiting in the uh, waiting room have a chance to perforate their appendix. Uh, if there are toxicological exposure, maybe they'll start seizing, maybe they'll tort their ovary. Like we have really sick patients that we need to care for. And the thinking is, and certainly this has been shown in studies, that if we start doing a lot more preventative care, if we switch that um, responsibility to emergency care, then that's going to harm people. Uh, whereas if you're doing that in a clinic setting, you're less likely to have someone out in the waiting room have one of those catastrophic events. So typically, this is not our domain. It's not the most efficient place to provide chronic care, also because we don't see patients again. So there's no continuity of care. But my argument is, in this specific case, you know, when, when we hypothesized about doing this study, I, I really thought that this would be one area where probably if we initiate oral anticoagulation, both the physician, the family physician, or the um, cardiologist would be more likely to continue it. And we have this teachable moment with patients when they're, you know, worried and scared and they're in the emergency department. And if we give them a prescription, probably they're more likely to take it. And in fact, they, most of them filled it within a day uh, rather than waiting for a couple of weeks and, oh, I felt fine the whole time. And did I really need to take this, this blood thinner? Uh, so I think, you know, just because of the specific drug, we have uh, an opportunity to have this impact, but I don't think we can extend that to other areas. Uh, we need to have good evidence for each individual preventative care before we start switching our focus in emergency medicine to more preventative care. Maybe I'll just ask uh, the two of you, Noah, first, whether there's anything you think we should have talked about that we haven't. From the family physician's perspective, uh, the idea that I might be, you know, bothered by the emergency doctor starting the medication. I think 
unless it's been done in error, I'm mainly going to appreciate it because it makes it more clear to the patient that this is, you know, a good idea for stroke prevention therapy. You know, there's e-notifications that are now happening in uh, Ontario, which hopefully Mm -hmm. will let the family doctor know that their patient's been in an emergency department. But the only randomized control trial that's been done in this area was done in Montreal, found that, yes, family doctors know more frequently that a patient was in the eMERGE, but it didn't change uh, how often the patient got follow-up. But that was for every single visit, not just, you know, specific chronic diseases that are higher acuity, for example. Um, so I don't know that e-notifications are going to make much of a difference, but uh, it's certainly part of a package that we need to establish uh, to get these patients good continuity of care. And we can be a part of that if, like this study shows, it actually makes a difference. Just so I'm clear, is, is an email that shows up in the family physician's inbox, is that right? Yes, in their EMR, as far as I know. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I get a notification in my EMR that says something like, you know, uh, uh, John Doe was in the emergency, the date. Sometimes I can see what the presenting complaint was, and that's it. So yeah. in this case, it, it might be that they came with, I don't know, uh, fatigue or, or something like that. And, you know, the diagnosis was atrial fibrillation. I might not know that without the patient bringing that back to me. Okay, well, thanks very much. Uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Claire Atsima and Dr. Noah Ivers, and I'd just really like to thank both of you for uh, spending the time with us today. Well, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you for having us. Noah is a family physician and researcher working at Women's College Hospital in Toronto with a PhD in clinical epidemiology. Dr. Atsum is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, and both of them have academic positions at the University of Toronto, and I'm very grateful for to them for taking uh, time out of their busy schedules to spend uh, time with me today. To read the research article that they've co-authored, please visit cmaj.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app. I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, the Editor-in-Chief of the CMAJ, and thank you for listening.